Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. One of my favorite genres of detective stories is the locked room. As far as murder mysteries go, it's an incredibly early genre, dating all the way back to authors Edgar Allan Poe, Sheridan Le Fanu, and, of course, Sherlock Holmes. More recent authors working in the genre have included G.K. Chesterton, John Dixon Carr, and, a fun fact, Edgar Foray, who, when not writing these novels, moonlighted for a while in the 1950s as the Prime Minister of France. But you can't beat the setup. In general, you find a body inside a room whose exits have all been sealed, and the task of the detective and the reader is to figure out not just who done it, but, maddeningly, how. You can't ask for a more tantalizing mystery. Which is why, as we wrap up our series on cold cases for the chilly winter months, I was so pleased to read about the case of Mina Decker, courtesy of Tobin Book in Cold Case, Michigan, published by the History Press. Author, historian, and expert on criminal history up in the Great Lakes state, even Tobin, with a slew of books to his name, admits this case remains an enigma. Mina's case is a real-life locked room mystery, one that has eluded solving since it first happened a century ago. And so what joy to get to dive into it together with him as he joins us here on the show. Tobin, welcome to Crime Capsule. We are so glad to have you. Thank you uh, for having me today. It is our pleasure. So, Tobin, I have to say, you are helping us round out at the very end of our series on cold cases for the cold winter uh, months, uh, a long uh, sort of deep dive into these unsolved and mysterious enigmatic cases that have uh, plagued investigators and tantalized researchers and and amused amateur sleuths for years and years. And I have to say, just right up front, as I was reading your book, Cold Case Michigan, I was struck by the fact that many of your cases are not just cold, they are on ice. I mean, there are so many where there are just no leads whatsoever. Uh, what's your take on that, just right off the bat? Well, I, I, my take on it right off the bat is that I think that people function on the mistaken assumption that cases um, aren't just always going to be solved, but that they're solved easily. And I think that in some instances, either because of environmental situations, um, environmental factors, or um, simply because they're crafty killers, there just aren't that many clues to find. Um, and so that, you know, if you have a killer, for example, I once wrote about a serial killer here in Michigan who was, um, his crimes were not sexually motivated. And so there was nothing left, his physical evidence. You know, he killed with an edge weapon. One instance, he walked up, stabbed a woman in the chest on, on Halloween and walked away. She was dead before she hit the ground. No fibers, no hairs, no blood, no, uh, body fluids, virtually nothing. And sometimes that happens. You know, it's I, I choose the phrase on ice uh, deliberately because um, our listeners 
may not be aware, but today is one of the worst days of this winter snowstorm that has got you, I believe the term is shellacked up there with snow up, <laughs> yeah. By, yeah. up by Lake Michigan. Shellacked so. would be it. Yeah, we, we're, we're, we're hit hard. Uh, we had about two feet of snow over the last uh, three, four days. So it's one of those kind of storms that just uh, happened from time to time. And, and uh, yeah, you know, we love it but we hate it at the same time. It's kind of a love-hate relationship we have with Mother Nature here in West Michigan. A lot of snow, uh, lake effect snow. Well, not to be flip, but it does make one wonder how many bodies are currently being covered in, you know, those two to three feet right now that future uh, future investigators are going to have to have to unearth. So um, I'm glad that you have begun to, to dig out a little bit. Tell us a little bit just about um, you and your background, Tobin. How did you come to doing this work? So I... Uh, began my interest in true crime writing a number of years ago when I was very interested in forensic science. I had, was in love with the show um, Law and Order Special Victims Unit, and those shows always have an, a really amazing M.E., and they can do things that like they're blood spatter experts and they're ballistics experts and they can get East uh, River water analyzed and they can get DNA results. And, you know, they can solve these crimes in 60 minutes, right? Or, you know, <laughs> right. yeah. less than that when you consider the commercials. And the reality isn't, isn't that. That's televised reality. Now, I happen to be a very good friend of the local medical examiner. And he was very concerned at the time about something called the CSI effect. And basically, juries get uh, programmed to expect certain things from uh, evidence because of shows like, like CSI and, and its various offshoots. And they can uh, sort of uh, expect before they're going to put somebody in prison for life, for example, they might want to see a DNA match. And that's not just always possible. It's not the reality. And so we decided to take back, a, you know, strip away the layers and show the reading audience what really happened in, forgive the pun, a real life morgue. So to become, uh, to become knowledgeable and to research, I became a morgue volunteer. So I got my gloves bloody and helped out with autopsies and got to see some things and, and hear some things that I kind of wish I had unseen and unheard, to be honest with you. I mean, to walk in that world is to walk on the uh, real dark side of humanity. But um, the works, uh, I, I wrote two books as a result of that experience. And they were my first two on forensic science. Now, I've always loved history. And so my interest in forensics and uh, my love of puzzles and my fascination with history came colliding together. And I have been writing about historic true crime ever since. And you had mentioned um, that some of the cases in this in this book are old. They go away back. And sometimes people ask me when I speak about this topic publicly, where's the relevance of all this? And, and I would offer to them the idea that crime runs in cycles. And we see history repeating itself in some very real ways and some very interesting, eerily similar ways. And I find that cases from the past um, can be very, very instructive 
about cases from the present and maybe even um, offer preventative tips for cases in the future. So a lot of times I write about cases from yesteryear, but they're very much cautionary tales from our, our, our world. And what's interesting, too, is you think about like the FBI and, and profilers, you know, that's what they do. They take old cases um, and they try to weave together profiles and that's how they track down criminals. So I think um, I hate to say it this way, but in 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 something old, there's also something new. Always. And, you know, sometimes we've, we've had this conversation many times on, on this show, you know, sometimes you have to have the passage of time, uh, take place before, you know, those voices can speak or before, uh, those clues can reveal themselves. It's not upfront, you know, sometimes things have to kind of be in motion in different ways before you actually, um, get a glimpse of what you're, what you're talking about there is to see the new in the old. Um, now this is your, as I understand it, your 11th book. And if I'm mistaken on that point, it's because after 10, Tobin, I stop counting. Um, <laughs> so, uh, tell me, uh, how did uh, this one in particular, Cold Case Michigan, come to be? I have always been very fascinated with cold cases. And I think that when I, when I speak about this publicly, and I, I do quite a bit of public speaking, um, I find that when I start talking about a cold case, people's ears kind of perk up. They're very fascinated. And I think part of that might be the fact that people love puzzles. I think mystery is still the most popular genre of fiction. And I think there's also a sense that um, people want justice and they want to feel like they live in a society where the law enforcement can give them that justice. And when there isn't an answer for it, it it's almost like a, it's like a type of a gaper's block. You know, people want to sort of stop and pause and look at the ugliness of a case unsolved and hopefully solve it so that there can be justice, that there can be closure for that. Um, my own personal interest in cold cases goes all the way back to 1888. And no, I'm not that old, although sometimes <laughs> I, wasn't I look gonna like ask. it, I feel like it. Yeah. So um, when I was a teenager, I graduated from high school, my older brother, uh, graduated with a PhD in psychology. We're very close. And we uh, went backpacking across Europe, which is quite an interesting experience. Now, in the 80s, when you flew uh, transatlantic flights, it isn't like it is today. Today, you go on a transatlantic flight and you have basically have a media center in the back of your seat. Um, you know, you can dial up whatever movie you want. Now, in the 80s, um, you were at the mercy of what they decided to show in the cabin. And, you know, you were happy to get it. Well, we flew British Airways, and what we were served was five hours of cricket highlights. Now, oh Lord, yeah, I don't understand cricket. In <laughs> no disrespect to the cricketers of the world, I grew up on baseball, and honestly, yeah. I don't understand cricket. And even after watching five hours of highlights, I still don't get it. Just the concept of sticky wickets, and you know, it's just foreign to me, right? So, on our last night, uh, we were in London. And we did a little bit of a pub crawl and we wound up next to this brightest, whitest church you can ever imagine. This is one o'clock in the morning and this thing's just bathed in spotlights, right? Well, it turns out that that's the White Chapel, right? Where White Chapel gets its name from. And we wound up at the Ten Bells, which is a pub right by the White Chapel where the Jack the Ripper supposedly met some of his victims and walking around in London, even today, it, it's like taking a step back in times, 
red brick and, you know, misty. It's what you would imagine it to be. Now, um, the next day we, we were flying back to the States and I faced what I remember being a really, really difficult decision for a teenager. I could either watch five more hours of cricket highlights or I could read a book. So I wandered into the, the little bookstore. Ex- existential choices, yeah, really well, existential yeah, choices yeah. at that moment. I mean, here yeah, I am. When I, I love to, to read and I love to write. But, you know, as a teenager, I you know, didn't like those things so much. And so I wandered into the, into the little uh, bookstore at the terminal there at Heathrow. And there it was. Like a bright light went off. You know, it was love at first fright. It was mm. Donald Rumbelow's Complete Jack the Ripper. Which, in, in my humble opinion, oh, is, is the book on Jack the Ripper. Donald Rumbelow was a former um, de- uh, detective with uh, Scotland Yard. And, you know, the Jack the Ripper case is an unsolved case, cold case. One could say the most infamous cold case ever. There's more books written about Jack the Ripper than anybody else. And we, didn't know if he know, we don't even know who the guy is, which gives you a pretty good indication of the fascination with cold cases. Well, I was hooked. So it was only a matter of time. Before I was going to write about uh, cold cases in my home state here, Michigan. So I, I went looking. I went looking for Jack the Ripper. And I, I, I didn't find him in Michigan, to be honest with you. But I found some very Ripper-esque style crimes um, that took place here. Well, uh, we're going to come to those in just a moment. But I will, I will say as one small point of consolation, if it, if it, if it helps. Uh, I lived in the United Kingdom for a good number of years, almost a decade, and um, tried as I might, I still, after 10 years, could not understand cricket either. And, you know, like my English friends would just stand there shaking their heads at this idiot American who could not <laughs> seem to remember the approximately 37 ways that a, that a bowler and a batsman, you know, could legally interact over the pitch. And so it's all I remember, me. it's, no, oh man, I tried. And I was, <laughs> I really gave it a, a, like a, a sincere effort. All I remember now is leg over wicket, leg over wicket. That's bad. That's a bad thing. Okay. That's, and then there are other things that happen too, but just leg over wicket is bad. And, <laughs> I'm having, and, I'm and I'm done. flashbacks here, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, and maybe it was cause I grew up on baseball too. And it's just like, I couldn't unlearn the one to learn the other, but you know, I just, yeah, it was, it was, um, it was a triumphal embarrassment on part, on, on, on part of the, um, you know, the, uh, the upstart Americans who, you know, are quite used to, to, um, being right about things and or winning wars. Uh, you know, the Brits were, were gleeful at my incompetence on this front. And I'm just, I'm so sorry I let us all down. So let's talk about Mina Decker <laughs> moving swiftly on. Mina Decker um, is a is a real uh, enigma. Yeah, yeah. If I had to describe the case in a word, it would be an enigma. In, in mystery lovers, you know, I I think it's kind of a closed room mystery in a lot of ways. Um, and as to how the perpetrator got in and out, it's interesting because we'll we'll take one half step back before coming to this case directly. I do want to ask you about the, uh, you know, when you take the bird's eye view of Cold Case Michigan, your book has about a dozen or so cases, and they span really the last century of uh, criminal activity and and unsolved cases in in um, in the area. And you know what struck me, just one thing that struck me, and I want I want to just kind of get this out there and ask you, uh, Tobin, because it, it is, it is uh, fascinating. Um, it's not like these cases are just kind of cut and dried, 
Um, somebody shoots somebody else with the 38 snub nose revolver, you know, and walks away and, and kind of, um, we just don't know who done it, but that's about it. Many of the cases in your book, and I mean, many of them, they are grisly. They are macabre. They are violent. And, and it's, it's the kind of violence that in many cases you write seems to have been personal. Okay. You know, which there's always that kind of instance of like when there's overkill, was there a vendetta? Was there, was there revenge going on? And that leads to the investigation in a different direction and so forth. This is a long question, but I just want to ask you, you know, what was it like for you as a researcher and then writing these up, um, dealing with that level of really ghastly violence in a lot of these particular stories? Well, it isn't as disturbing, at the risk of sounding like a real creeper here, it wasn't as disturbing as you might think because of my background in forensic science. Sure, so makes let sense. So let, yeah. let me tell you that you can really get used to some things. And I found that when I watched the first, helped out with the first autopsy, watched the first autopsy, I was very much like a deer in headlights, you know, just kind of stunned into like, like awe and, and, and shock. And I think I was numb from that for a while. And you get to the 15th, the 20th autopsy now, and all of a sudden, it's amazing what you can get used to. And I think that I was no longer bothered by some things. And that fact bothered me. Right. So I know that, that, you know, it, it's kind of a hard thing to get your mind around, but um, it isn't that I like violence um, in any way, shape or form. Um, but I, I've grown accustomed to reading about it, I think, in a way that it, 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 it doesn't keep me up at night so much. And that, I think, has a lot to do with where I've been. Um, but I will say this, I, I, I don't glorify it. And I don't, it's, so it's not put into the books to be gratuitous, but I think it's very, very important to look at it. And the reason for that is, is I think there are clues to possible perpetrators when you look at actually how the, how the crime was committed. So you look at, you look at the, the, the Dr. Loomis, for example, um, and who, whose wife uh, was, he found bludgeoned to death with a two by four on the floor of uh, on their the floor of their front parlor well she was hit so many times so hard from sudden such an angle that if you really look at the violence itself you can conclude that it was probably a male it was probably somebody taller than her because it was a downward angle on the, on the thing and even even beyond that you got to understand a little bit, and I think the readers need to understand that a head injury like that is going to cause uh, cast off stains. There's going to be blood everywhere. And that's really important because um, not just to this case, but to the Mina Decker case, the blood is very, very important. A, a perpetrator couldn't have done what these perpetrators did without being covered in the stuff. So it, it, we, if you take a look at the, the grisly part of it. You can get some clues. You can deduce some clues from, and, and, and again, one of the things that, that I took from the brutality of, of that Loomis crime was the fact that any one of those blows would have probably killed her. Why hit her so many times? And I think that it's reasonable that you look at other crimes that have been solved that have that level of brutality to it. And one could reasonably conclude that it becomes more than just a random act of violence. This is more than a thief who happened to just sneak in. Um, 
this is there's some real passion behind this. Uh, he didn't want to just kill her. He wanted to destroy her. That gives us a very good indication of who we might want to look for. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast. So I was also thinking of the case regarding the um, the headhunters, uh, the sort of shrunken heads that were found, you know, in, in this sort of box underneath the um, you know floorboards, and very very unusual. And we'll we'll leave that one again for our listeners to discover. They're just they're they're perplexing in some ways. So um, you know, really they, interesting. Every one of them, every one of them is a puzzle. The the Loomis case is very very important, I think, for the Mina Decker case, and it's also. A really good example of what I mean when I say that sometimes older cases can be instructive of uh, can can help us solve newer cases because I think if if they're they're parallel in a lot of ways. Um, not only are we talking about blunt force trauma, um, but the type of the type of head wounds and how they were inflicted. If you follow the standard line of thinking about who did it in the Dr. Loomis case, I think that gives you a really good indication of who you should look for in the Mina Decker case. So they're not the same perpetrator. I don't mean to indicate that, you know, somebody didn't get from Detroit 1927 up to Grand Rapids, you know, in 1938 to do another crime. It's not that's what I'm saying. What I'm saying is one case I think is very, very suggestive about this other case. And that's because we can look at patterns. Well, let's let's shift gears and let's take a look at Mina. And uh, we are now in Grand Rapids in March of 1938. And, you know, it's funny, as I was reading um, about her, you know, <laughs> um, this particular case did not start with conflict or tension or pre-existing drama in the same way that many of the others did. I mean, you had the, the most amount of drama that you had as you're introducing the, the personages, you know, the, the figures in this case, is that uh, young Mina Decker, you know, 19 years old, the stenographer um, at, a, at a local company, had had a breakup with a boyfriend and, and, even then, it, it wasn't quite clear whether it was a total breakup or whether it was just sort of a passing, uh, you know, phase or something like that. But we're not talking about vengeful ex-husbands. You know, we're not talking about, you know, stalkers right off the bat. We're not talking about land deals gone wrong and there's somebody out, you know, looking to settle a score here. This, If this were a cinema, uh, you know, sort of opening, it would almost be like Robert Altman's The Player, where you just have people at work. Just people at work, you know, like a normal day in a normal American city in a normal afternoon, you know, and they're about to take a normal lunch break. And the whole thing is so normal 
that it's almost a little eerie, Tobin. You know, <laughs> well that that is what that is what makes it eerie because you and me and your all of our listeners, they're out there living those normal lives too, and they're going to do their normal day to day business. And so that's when I, I mentioned earlier why I think people might be so fascinated with cold cases is because this is like a nightmare for people, you know, to go about your daily business and become a victim of a violent crime. So. Maybe there's nothing you can do about that, but um, the system can give you justice, right? And I think maybe people demand that to a certain degree. Well, tell us um, about Mina. Mina was well liked by all accounts. Um, she grew up in a, a very, very conservative uh, family. They were um, religious. The dad worked for a local Christian Reformed church, I believe, um, and she was uh, she was a choir girl. And this was a type of family, I think, where, you know, the, 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 the devil's triad was, <clears throat> you know, alcohol, uh, smoking, uh, premarital sex. And, and you might throw in there gambling right away, too. So I think that um, she was very much and, and, and that may be part of the problem is that Mina Decker might have been um, – subject of a post-mortem whitewashing because I think the community very much looked at her or wanted to see her as a one-woman kind of guy, a kind of guy, a one-woman kind of gal. And I think that maybe that isn't in the strictest sense true. Um, but she had a boyfriend, and you're right, the, the, it, it was unclear, I think, um, whether it was a full-on break. He was apparently very, very fond of her and was uh, pretty taken aback by the breakup. I think it came to a misunderstanding. She must have seen him with another uh, another woman, perhaps having lunch, and jumped to some conclusions. Um, they broke up. So, yeah, I, I mean, she was she had a, a sister, um, and and you know, by all accounts, a very beloved person. Yeah. Yeah, bright, you and know, she was yeah, the, just at the beginning of her career and yeah, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So she was the only employee really of a father-son owned uh, firm and um, she uh, got that job right after high school, I believe. And uh, she worked in the office primarily. Now, the, the firm made abrasives, so well, uh, sandpapers and things. For industrial uses, a lot of cobblers and shoemakers use these things to repair shoes, fix shoes. And the the company was in the second story of, I'm sorry, third story of a four-story building. Um, she would have worked in the office, which would have been adjacent to the warehouse where they kept their stores. The building is in a busy part of Grand Rapids. It was across from a train station at the time. And the second and fourth floor were vacant. The first floor was occupied by a different firm, and there was one public staircase leading up into the Bear Manning office where Mina worked. And that staircase went right past the lunchroom for the guys who worked at the first floor firm, so they could see who was coming and going. Very visible, yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm trying to, I'm trying to sort of get a sense of just what the beginning of that day look looked like because you know by by the lunch hour i mean everything had changed and yet there was no indication early on that anything was about no, to change no i i think that that there were some things that came up later on that indicated there was trouble brewing for mina decker um 
But at this point in time, it was business as usual. So I think that there may have been people who had come in and out of the warehouse to buy abrasives that morning. It might have been a slow day. I don't think anybody really paid much attention to the comings and goings prior to the noon hour um, because nothing had really happened at that point in time. Now, as the story goes, father and son go to lunch and they leave the business. Uh, they leave Mina, Mina alone there by herself in the office. And a few minutes later, a, a delivery boy, a, a telegram delivery boy comes by, comes by and his name is Banning. And he's only there for a few minutes on business. He's a 17-year-old kid. And he later told the police that when he was with Mina, she heard a sound in the warehouse and she sort of jerked her head to the side. And she appeared afraid, although he didn't think really much of it at the time. And they keep the union uh, telegram boys on a real tight schedule. So he was only there for a few minutes and then uh, and then he left. Minutes later, and, and I, I'd have to go back and look at the text, but maybe it's like 22 minutes later. Um, a shoe salesman by the name of Peters goes up to the to the uh, Bear Manning to buy some sandpaper. And when he gets into the office, he sees that there's nobody there. Uh, the lights are on, but nobody's home, right? Which he thought was odd. See, he went into the warehouse to see if he could find anybody. And that's where he stumbled across um, uh, Mina Decker, who's laying in a pool, a widening pool of blood uh, between stacks of, you know, crates of material, wallpaper, uh, wallpaper, um, sandpaper and abrasives and things, uh, bleeding profusely from a head wound. So Peters races down to the first floor and gathers a few of the first floor workers and they come up. And uh, one of them calls the police. One of them calls an ambulance. And those folks are on the scene within minutes. And she's taken to a local hospital. Uh, blunt head trauma like she sustained um, sometimes kill a person on the spot, sometimes not. And there's a really interesting physical dynamic um, about I won't go into the detail here, but um, basically what happens is Physicians have what are called the golden hour to vacate pressure around, around you know, bleeding and in, in intracranial bleeding or it's lights out. So they went. She never regained consciousness because it, she uh, it sustained such a massive head wound um, that it didn't matter what they did. She was going to die. But at the very first, at the very beginning, they looked at it as a possible accident that somehow she had fallen and hit her head. And to me, that's one of the kind of a, a mystifying thing because that kind of a head, that kind of a level head wound, you would not get just falling off a ladder. Um, when she was hit six times over the head with a ball peen hammer and she was bludgeoned with such force that it, it ejected a piece of skull across the floor. So looking at that, you know. There'd be a lot of blood, hair uh, that might have obscured a lot of the wound itself. But you would think that a massive injury like that wouldn't necessarily lead to anybody thinking it was an accident. But that's how they played it at first. The doctor took a look at her head and came back and said, yeah, she'd been hit six times with a wall peen hammer. This is no accident unless she hit herself six times in the head herself. And it's impossible. So they went back and they started to look at it as a crime scene. You know, it's remarkable to think that even – even for in the first instance with that 
kind of assault. You know, I mean, uh, and we'll we'll get into the investigation more next week, but um, just just the thought that you know a box of sandpaper could fall off a shelf and hit her in the head and do that, or or even a shelf could tip over somehow. I mean, kind of randomly, or she might have stumbled. And I mean, it just, it's completely beyond the pale of explanation, <laughs> you know, and it just, it's not, I'm sorry. I'm just so sorry. You don't get to play that. <laughs> well, no. And if she had an uncontrolled fall from a ladder, say three feet, you know, it wouldn't take much to break a neck or to have a, have a, a closed head injury that might not even, even damage the scalp. I mean, unless she's hit with something sharp, there wouldn't be those kind of angular wounds, right? So to, to me, the, the, the forensics of it just doesn't fit an accident. But, you know, that's how they, that's how they looked at it at, at the very earliest stage of the investigation. But that, you know, um, was quickly dispelled by the physician who said, no, 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 this, this is a hammer you got to be looking for. And we will go in search of that perpetrator and that hammer next week as we dive into the investigation itself. Uh, for now, thank you so much for joining us and for introducing us to this particular case. We'll see you back shortly. Sounds great. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. Our guest has been Tobin Book, author of Cold Case Michigan, published by the History Press. To order a copy of the book, visit your local independent bookstore or visit arcadiapublishing.com. Join us next week as we continue our conversation with Tobin. See you then. Thanks as always to our producer, Bill Huffman, our production director, Bridget Coyne, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, and our executive producers, Michael DeLoya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts and a signature title of the Killer Podcasts Network. You can find Crime Capsule wherever you listen to podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcasts.com. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife, Maggie, and son, Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page.